The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 15. We will not read the entire chapter. We'll read enough verses for us to get a clear idea of what the chapter tells us. And the verses will be up here on the screen. So I'll read verses 1 to 3, 13 to 15, 19 through 23, and then 32 through 34a. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Thus far the reading of sacred scripture, and we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. The Bible verses that, that we just read... Tell us how one day Samuel came to King Saul with an important message from God. Saul must go out and fight with evil people called Amalekites. These Amalekites were very, very wicked people. God hated them for their evil, and he ordered Saul to fight them and to wipe them off of his beautiful earth. So Saul gathered a large army to fight these evil Amalekites, and God gave Israel the victory. Saul and the soldiers killed everyone like God commanded, except the king. And they also kept alive many of the animals. But the ones that that, that they killed many of the animals, but, but those ones that looked strongest and healthiest, they kept alive. Now, do you think that was good enough obedience? No, no, it was not. And so God told Samuel that he was going to make someone else king instead of Saul. So Samuel knew that 
Saul had not obeyed God's word. Well, Samuel had a hard time sleeping that night as he thought about Saul because he really liked Saul and he hoped that he would be a good king for Israel. But he also knew that a good king must obey all of God's commands, not just some of them. When Samuel got up the next morning, Saul wasn't at the battlefield. When Samuel found out, well, he found out that Saul had gone off to some other place. Now, why would Saul do that? Saul did that because he knew that Samuel was coming and that Samuel would scold him for not obeying God's command. So Samuel had to walk out to a different place to find Saul, you see, because God would not let Saul get away. And when Saul saw that Samuel was coming, he put on his fake smile and went out to meet him. Of course, Samuel didn't have to ask if he had obeyed God's command. Saul ran up, shook his hand, and bragged, I did what God commanded me to do. Samuel knew that he was lying, and so he said, You obeyed? Then, then why do I hear cows and sheep? Saul was ready with an excuse, though. The people, the people saved them as presents for God. Saul was blaming the people for his sin and then acting like God would be happy to get gifts instead of obedience. You know, I'm sure that your moms like to get flowers, but if you give her flowers instead of cleaning your room like she told you to do, she will not be happy with your gift. If your dad tells you to take out the trash and you take the garbage and scatter it all out in the driveway and pick out a few things that you think are nice, throw the rest away and then bring those items into the house and give to your dad, what's he going to say? I don't want these. That's why they're in the garbage in the first place. You can't give gifts of garbage that someone has thrown away. And the reason that God commanded even their animals to be killed is because the Amalekites were so wicked that everything they owned was dirty with their sins. Their animals could never be offered to God as sacrifices. They were the animals of sinful people that God hated, and God only accepts the sacrifices of His children whom He loves. So Saul had to be scolded by Samuel. And Samuel said to him, you know, when you were afraid and you didn't think much of yourself, that's when God made you king. But now you think you're so important and you feel that you know better than God. To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, Saul and the people wouldn't obey God, but they brought a sacrifice, a wicked disobedient sacrifice instead. Well, Samuel turned around to walk away from Saul, and as he did, Saul fell down on the ground to grab the bottom of Saul, Samuel's long robe to stop him from walking away, and when he grabbed it, it ripped. And God used that rip as a picture for Saul. Samuel said to him, the way that you ripped my robe, that's how God will rip the kingdom away from you and make an obedient man king instead. Now, after this scolding, Saul begged Samuel to stay and worship with him in front of all the people. At least this way, Saul wouldn't be totally embarrassed in front of all the people. Samuel gave in and worshiped with Saul, but before he did, he first commanded that the Amalekite king be killed like God had commanded. And after that, 
Samuel went home and he never saw or spoke with Saul ever again. Now we can learn a lot from Samuel's words. To obey is better than sacrifice. See, when our dads or moms tell us to do something, God wants us to obey them and not to do anything else, even give them presents. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life, and may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, our approach to the text this morning will be as follows. We'll take Saul as a case study in disobedience. We'll look at Samuel as the the fearless and faithful minister who had to lay down the law on the sinful church officer. And finally, we'll look at this text with Christ in view as the ideal king and show how Christ upholds the antithesis. Now, before we launch into the sermon this morning, there are a few things that we need to to see, a few quick observations. Number one, God's grace toward his people governs everything that happens in this story. Number two, for the sake of his grace toward his people, God rejects the rebel Saul. Number three, Amalek was the first of the heathen nations that opposed Israel in the wilderness. And thus Amalek is a type of all the hostile powers that oppose the church. Amalek hated the grace of God that he showed his people in the communion of the covenant. And for that reason, Amalek had to be destroyed. And fourthly, though God gave Israel the kind of king they asked for, he still viewed his people in the grace of the covenant. Saul was given as a chastening. And when Saul had served his purpose, God removed him. These things all stand behind everything that is recorded in our text. Our outline will be as follows. Number one, the antithesis asserted. Number two, the antithesis violated. And number three, the antithesis vindicated. For our first point, the antithesis asserted. Let's recap again the idea of the reformed doctrine of the antithesis. The antithesis is the wall of separation that God has placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is the opposition or enmity between the church and the world. Isaiah 52, 11, 2 Corinthians 6.16 and Revelation 18.4 all say, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Ephesians 5.11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Revelation, uh, Romans 12.2, Be not conformed to this world. The antithesis is as old as creation. It didn't come into existence for God's people after the fall. Genesis 1.4 says, God divided light from darkness. And from that moment on, light has stood as a representation of God's pure and holy character. And darkness has stood as a representation of sin and evil. John 3.19 tells us, 
the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The antithesis was represented in the Garden of Eden by the two trees in the midst of the garden. Man, by God's command, was to say yes to the one and no to the other because God had said yes to the one and no to the other. And the fall did not eradicate the antithesis. As soon as man fell, God announced that he would bring forth the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he promised that he would put enmity between them. This enmity is the antithesis. Now for the Old Testament church, Amalek was a representation of the seed of the serpent, thus was destined to have its head crushed. You may recall back in Exodus 17, even before Israel got to Mount Sinai, Amalek attacked them. And Joshua led Israel's army into battle, while Moses stood on top of the hill overlooking the battlefield. Whenever Moses raised his hands in prayer to God, Israel prevailed. Whenever he put them down, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and Hur moved a large rock for Moses to sit on, and they stood, they stood at either side and helped him hold up his hands. This was a picture of Christ's intercession for his people, because the church is only victorious through the intercession of Christ. Now, because Amalek was the first nation to attack the church, they became a picture to God's people of the evil world power that sets itself against the kingdom of God. And so in Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16, we read, God said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book, the Bible, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my war banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So there is a lot of history behind the command of God in our text. Notice that Samuel's message to Saul comes from the Lord of hosts. Now this, this title, the Lord of hosts, is a name that God uses of himself when he speaks of warfare against evil. Exodus 15.3 calls God a man of war. Revelation 19 gives us this description of Christ. Behold a white horse, and he who sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should, title of our sermon, strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. The command to annihilate Amalek wasn't just any old command. Although even if it were, it would still carry the full authority of God. But this command was special. Because it was a command from God as the judge of evil. It was by the hand of his church that he wished to exact vengeance on wickedness. Now, you may have a few qualms about this command, especially since it was extremely severe by our soft Western effeminate sensibilities, but we should keep a few things in mind. Number one, if we view it in respect to the judgment that Amalek deserved, then there is nothing here that should offend the feeling of any well-constituted Christian mind. 
from one end of the Bible to the other, God appears as the righteous judge and avenger of sin. If we can read of the flood, the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the existence of the lake of fire, and if we can read of such things as parts of God's administration without it disturbing our conviction that the judge of all the earth always does what is right, then there's no reason that this command against Amalek should bother us. Secondly, consider this judgment in respect to the instrument that God used to execute it. And again, nothing will be found here at variance with the principles of righteousness. Amalek deserved judgment. Indeed, Amalek was already under the death sentence as far back as Exodus 17. But we need to think of this sentence as it was executed by the hand of Israel. Now, apostate liberals have frequently asserted that this would produce a hard and calloused heart among the people of Israel. But this foolish objection proceeds on the assumption that there was no doom of heaven pronounced against Amalek, which of course there was. But quite the opposite would in fact be the case. Israel would be brought face to bloody face with the reality of God's hatred of sin. When my sword cuts down a man who is no different from me in the eyes of the world, but whom God has devoted to destruction on account of his sin, I am made to see how hateful my sin is in the sight of God. And I am made to value and cherish the grace of God in Christ, of which I am an undeserving recipient. And thirdly, when we look at this command in its typical sense, in other words, as a foreshadowing of gospel times, the moral necessity of this judgment becomes apparent. I mean, obviously all sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, but we have to look farther and connect to this judgment with the higher purposes of God with respect to his kingdom among men. Canaan was to be a picture to the church of the eternal rest of heaven. And this fact is exactly what is behind all of those New, Ta uh, New Testament scriptures that say things like, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or the ones who say, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. No, not even to eat with such a person. You see, Canaan was to be a picture of heaven and therefore all wickedness had to be cast out. Revelation 22.5 reads, But outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So commands such as this one to exterminate all of Amalek served as a picture of God's zeal for holiness and his war against anything that pollutes the purity of his church. Now, while Christians are not today commanded to take up swords and slaughter hordes of unbelievers, the principles of God's dealings with His church are the same in essence. God took the most corrupt place on earth, the iniquitous and perverse land of Canaan, and converted it into a haven of holy rest for His people. This fearsome judgment, through it, God fitted the land 
to be a home for his saints. And through this fearsome judgment, God gave a foreshadowing of the great final judgment of this world, which will be redeemed from the powers of darkness and made a suitable habitation for his glorified saints. Now on to our second point, the antithesis violated. Under Saul's leadership, Israel broke the antithesis. The Israelites captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Saul did not put him to death. Also, at the insistence of his men, Saul allowed the finest of the Amalekites' cattle to be spared. Everything of Amalek was supposed to be subjected to the judgment of God's grace toward his people. But Saul wasn't motivated by a zeal to have this grace revealed. And that's why he could so easily yield to his men. He also wanted to glorify himself by having a defeated king as a captive in his court. Maybe he thought he could get a handsome reward for Agag. And at this point, Saul could no longer serve God's people. He could not be a servant of God's grace for his people. He could not be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus desired nothing but to serve God in the grace of his covenant. In Psalm 40, in verse 8, Jesus says, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Multiple times in the Gospels, we hear Jesus say, I have come to do the will of the Father who sent me. Saul received a command from God and he flagrantly disobeyed it. And because of his disobedience, he was rejected as king. Israel's king was supposed to be a foreshadowing of Christ. And since Saul refused to bruise the serpent's head, he was cast away. And from then on, Saul was an antitype of the Christ. He was an antichrist. Now in our story, we, we see a very important and frankly frightening thing. That a man can solemnly profess obedience to God while he flagrantly disregards God's clear commands. And Saul is not the last person to do this. Many men are blind and ignorant to the fact that God's eye is always on them and that his law binds them day and night. They don't live perpetually in the fear of the Lord. God is not in all their thoughts, says the psalmist. A man who has small thoughts of sin can never have great thoughts of God. A proper sense of God's presence and the binding force of his law would put it out of our power to sin with the careless ease that is so common in our day. Many men look upon God's law as if it were merely good advice that they're free to take or leave without consequence. But God's law is an unbending rule. If God reveals his will about anything, we are as equally bound to obey whether the matter seems large or small to us. We are not commissioned to amend God's law. We are not judges, we are servants. Our duty is simply to obey. And many choose how far they will obey God's commandments. Like Saul, they kill the polluted and the vile, but they save what seems good to them. And Saul came under judgment for this. And that brings us to our third point. The antithesis vindicated. 
Now, God vindicated the antithesis as well as his grace in two ways. First, in judgment upon Saul, and second, judgment upon Agag. Now, God declares to Samuel that he was sorry that he made Saul king. Now, that doesn't mean that God regretted his own free act. God knew what he was doing all along. When the Bible uses language like this, we must remember that he is addressing himself to our weakness. God often speaks in terms of human sentiment to convey something to us of his administration of righteousness. God never learns. He is all-knowing. Nothing ever happens that catches him by surprise. He actively ordains all things. This language is meant to convey to us God's love for his people. You know, in the same way that you as a parent might feel and even express your sadness at the fact that you had to discipline your child, God expresses his love for his children in this same language. And we've talked about this before. A parent may intentionally let a child have its own way in order to teach a lesson. But eventually, the parent steps in and ends the lesson. I mean, you might let your child get startled or overtired to teach him a lesson. And you're not going to let him end up in the ER. God gave Saul to Israel because they asked for a king, quote, like the kings of the nations. But God didn't surrender his crown. He was still king over his church. And he still had their best interests at heart. Disciplining them by giving them Saul was a manifestation of God's grace. He was teaching his people that they must always submit to the rule of his grace. Their desire to have a king like this was a violation of the antithesis. They wanted to blur the distinction between themselves and the Canaanite world. So Saul was God's discipline for such a sinful desire. You see, violating the antithesis is to say by our actions that Christ is a partner with Satan But doesn't the scripture say what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness? To violate the antithesis is to call evil good and good evil. To put darkness for light and light for darkness. And God will not tolerate it. Now, removing Saul was also a manifestation of God's grace. God was showing his people that only someone who surrendered fully to the grace of God could serve the Lord as king. Saul wasn't fit to represent Christ as the king of his church because he wasn't obedient to God. Our Lord Jesus did everything for the sake of the reign of God's favor, and we, in turn, can only serve him in faithful submission. The Lord turned away from Saul as king because it was clear that Saul didn't honor God's grace above everything else. God's blessing couldn't rest on Saul's kingship. Our text also tells us how Samuel's anger was kindled against Saul's rejection of God's grace. And as he thought about it, thought about Saul's sin, he realized how it flew in the face of his love for Saul and even threatened his own life's work, which he had dedicated to the honor of God's grace in Israel. And he wrestled with this problem all night long in hopes that the the course that events were taking might somehow be reversed. But when the night was over... Samuel knew that God's decision was irreversible. God wouldn't tolerate anyone trying to steal his people from him. 
The faithfulness of the Lord to his people demanded the rejection of Saul as king. You remember last week when Jonathan said, My father has troubled Israel. He was comparing Saul to Achan, the infamous troubler of Israel. And he was right to do so. Saul was guilty of Achan's sin. Saul spared the king devoted to destruction and took of the forbidden spoil. Achan sinned in taking of the forbidden spoil of Jericho. This was the exact same sin. And in the case of Saul, it was far more egregious. I mean, first of all, Saul knew the story of Jericho. And secondly, Saul wasn't just a rank-and-file soldier like Achan was. He was the king. He was the visible head of the church. And so his rebellion had to be judged with extreme force. The church had to be made to see that God will not tolerate anyone usurping his authority. If God says, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, no man on earth has the right to alter that word. But man's heart is so so vile that it perverts the mercies of God to the worst ends, to support a, a false sense of security. Long life, good health, and prosperity are abused to sinful ends. Men say, we will never be moved. Tomorrow will be just as this day. And often nothing can shake this blind confidence until it is too late. The man who won't cry for mercy when everything is going well will certainly not plead for grace in the day of distress. God's word commanded, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. All men belong to a God. And if a believer engages in a spiritual alliance with a servant of greed, of lust, of power, of drunkenness, he is making a covenant with that man and that man's God. And he will infallibly be led into sin against the true God. Now the second way that the Spirit of Christ vindicated the antithesis was by the execution of Agag. Remember, every prophet, every priest... Every king, every sacrifice, every holy day, every ritual, every ceremony of the Old Testament was a picture of Christ. The Spirit of Christ dwelt in Samuel, and through Samuel's actions, Christ vindicated His grace toward His people. Now, this, this story here has kind of a, a part two in the Bible. The, that episode can be found in the book of Esther. There we read of a man named Mordecai, who scripture tells us was a Benjamite of the clan of Kish, who was Saul's father. So Mordecai, like King Saul, was a descendant of Kish. And in the book of Esther, Mordecai comes into conflict with an evil man named Haman, whom the Bible calls an Agagite, that is, a descendant of Agag. So, many centuries after Saul failed to obey God's explicit command to destroy Amalek, this same battle resurfaces. Haman the Agagite plots to destroy the entire church of God. Unresolved sins have a, have a way of creeping back out of the shadows. Well, back to Samuel. As the representative of Christ, the true prophet of God's people, 
Samuel fulfilled all righteousness where Saul had failed. Just as Christ obeyed where Adam disobeyed, Samuel fulfilled God's sentence against Amalek where Saul had made shipwreck of the faith. And I just have to say that that we sin gravely against God's justice when we wince at the language that Scripture uses to describe this judgment. Be afraid of it, yes, but don't ever be ashamed of it. Every time God's law commands retribution for sin, it also commands your eye shall not pity. Deuteronomy 7.16 is a perfect example because it connects the two sides. You shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. The antithesis is God's appointed means of preserving the purity of his church, making common cause with the world is a rejection of the grace of God. It is a denial of Christ's propriety over us as his people. It is a sin against the very life and death of Jesus Christ. And thus, full of the Spirit of Christ, Samuel orders Agag to be brought before him for judgment. You can just see Agag coming to Samuel with a smirk on his face and a swagger in his walk. The Bible says he came cheerfully, thinking to himself, surely the bitterness of death is past. The next verse, though, says, But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Agag reaped what he sowed. God is unflinchingly just. When the enemies of the Lord are most confident in their own strength, that's when God undoes them. And notice that this judgment of being hacked in pieces is presented as the just sentence of God against Agag. Never, never let your heart feel bad for God's enemies. His judgment is just. And we sin against God's grace when our eyes pity the wicked in their destruction. Now one note in closing. This was done in Gilgal. Gilgal was a significant place for the Old Testament church. This is where all of those who were born during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness received the sign of the covenant. You know, imagine that that you had a baby while you were fleeing for your life you might postpone the baby's baptism until a more opportune time. This generation that was born in the wilderness, they were on the run. They hadn't been circumcised. At Gilgal they were, and the place was called Gilgal because it was here that the shame of Egypt was rolled off their back. The word Gilgal means to roll. When God slew Agag by the sword of Samuel, he did it at Gilgal. To roll off the church's back the shame of of Saul's rebellion and disobedience. When we trust in the grace of Christ and rely on his triumph over sin, we experience the grace of Gilgal, the blessing of Gilgal. God is rolling off our backs the shame of our slavery to sin. Let us pray.